Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is Jay. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we are in the book of Romans. And uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the verses are going to be up on the screen behind me. But we're calling it Reconstructing Romans. What we find out is that Romans is not just a theology uh, manual. It is a letter that's written to a fractured church of Jewish and Gentile believers who are struggling with how to get along with each other. There's a conflict, and we're going to talk about that conflict in more detail today. Um, but one group is essentially trying to force the other group to submit to its laws and customs in order to be considered fully Christian, fully accepted, fully secured as part of this community. And Paul, is, uh, who's the author, is giving them the good news of Jesus to these Christians because they need it. They're royally messed up. It's a hot mess. And Paul knows that the only thing that's going to help them overcome this conflict is the peace that God provides through Jesus. Now today we're going to be in chapter 5, and it's going to seem at first glance like Paul has shifted gears and he's now talking about something entirely other than what he's been already talking about for the first four chapters. That he's going from sort of a relational problem to a disembodied spiritual problem. But hold on, folks. Hold on. Uh, because Paul is, is um, yes, he's shifting gears. But he's diving into the heart of the solution for these folks. And for us, too. So Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, but also, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, as we uh, get started today, I want to ask you a question. And this is the question. How do you respond when confronted with relational conflict? 
How do you respond when you are confronted with relational conflict? Some of you, your palms just went sweaty. So like, I, we're talking about this today? What's your MO? Your modus operandi, when tensions rise, when disagreement flares up, when you're at loggerheads with someone and you cannot see eye to eye. Now let me clarify, I'm not asking what tactics do you use to repair the relationship. That's an important question for another day. The question that I'm asking is, what is your relationship to conflict itself? What's your posture when it's thrust upon you? Some of us, uh, we power up in conflict situations. We increase the tone of our voice or the tone of our rhetoric. I see some people identifying with that one. Some of us run as fast as we can away from the conflict. We retreat into the safety of isolation, distance, inner thoughts even. Some of us freeze. We're unable to think and so we disassociate with the conflict and we go numb. And some of us go into peacekeeping mode. We crank up the kindness to smooth over the disagreement. We focus on the positives to maintain the status quo. We become meek and mild to dispel the hostility. Uh, psychologist Walter Cannon labels these as stress responses, and they go under the labels. You've probably heard some of these before. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Four F words. Um, and they're stress responses that our bodies employ to keep us safe from perceived threats. And we learn these responses when we're very, very young in response to conflict, usually with our caretakers, our parents, or other guardians, people of influence and authority over our bodies. And we learn them as ways to create bodily and relational regulation or equilibrium, to bring peace within ourselves and with other people. Do you get where I'm going? Do you see these? What is your relationship to conflict? Do you fight? Do you flee? Do you freeze up? Or do you fawn over the other person to make things better? Conflict is inevitable. It's part of our human experience. We see it in uh, every single relationship that we have, and we see it at the level of nations. Look at the news family. And maybe uh, when you think about your own response to conflict, your relationship to it, the postures that you take, maybe you wish you had a different way to navigate conflict. Maybe the strategies that you've learned when you were a kid, they don't always do good work for you in the relationships that you have now. Maybe you wish you could change. Maybe you sense that your relationships could be better if you didn't fall as again and again into the same patterns that seem to work for a little while but do not bring the peace that God promised. Can you relate? If so, hear this good news. That in Christ we are given a new operating system 
for navigating the inevitable conflicts and struggles that we face. No longer are we left to endure divisions alone or navigate them with the same old methods. Because now, we stand in the secure grace of knowing that God has poured the love that we need into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, friends, this Holy Spirit leads us to face and befriend conflict as the ground on which we encounter God's reconciling power to save. Okay, some of you are like, why in the world are we talking about this in Romans 5? Because I've been reading Romans 5 for a while, and this is a text about getting folks saved, isn't it? This is about getting to heaven. And what it took to get there? Well, there's a number of ways that I could go about this, but the first way that I've done before, and I'd like to do it again if that's all right with you, is to remember that our text here today begins with yet another therefore. And what are we supposed to remember when there's a therefore? What's it doing there, man? That's another way to put it. Who put that stinking therefore, therefore? Um, and as we said, it, it links what is being said presently with what was just said previously. And if you remember, Paul hasn't been giving a theology lesson to non-Christians. That's not been his aim. He's been trying to talk his Jewish Christian friends out of their sense of superiority in relationship to their Gentile brothers and sisters. And so, in fact, we, we didn't read this before, but Romans 3, verse 27 through 30, Paul says, Where then is boasting? Where is your sense of superiority? Is it... Is it, is it warranted? No, it's excluded. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify both through faith. You see what he's doing? And so for four chapters now, Paul has been using every tactic he can think of to break the spell of superiority that, that has led to division and conflict in these small house churches in Rome. To get them to see that they are the same people before God. All are broken. All are made right. All have a place. All are accepted by God through faith, not because they follow Jewish customs. Last chapter, Paul brings Abraham to Rome. Yeah, come on in. Let's see what happens. And he brings Abraham to Rome to uh, show that Abraham, too, was accepted by God through faith. Because he believed the promise that God had give, would give him a son, and through that son, nations. And so he's, what he's doing is he's taking Abraham away as a reason for one group to feel superior and he gives Abraham back to everyone in the communities to say, you're all secure in God's family the same way that your forefather was. And, and so now he's your father too. Remember that? That was last week. And so now we get to chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, and here's, here are options. Here are the options. Either chapter 5 has absolutely nothing to do with the, the problem that Paul's been addressing up until now, 
or it has everything to do with it. It's one or the other. Either Paul has ADHD, or he knows what he's talking about. And I don't use that derogatorily. I'm, I'm just saying, like, he, he, either he is jumping from one thing to another because he can't focus on one topic, one aspect, one goal. He's getting scattered. Or he's coming at the same thing from a new angle. All of Paul's arguments that lead up to this moment in chapter 5, they lead up to this moment. And what I think Paul is doing here is he is anticipating that if he's been effective, if he's gotten into their hearts and, and, and the Spirit of God has begun to change them from the inside out, this is, I think, Paul's hope, that, that these people are beginning to see that they are the same and that the conflict they've been waging is doing damage to Jesus' body. If that's occurred, then the very next thing this community is going to feel is shame, remorse, and oh my gosh, what have we done? Right? Shame over what they wrought on their brothers and sisters, shame that they've let things get as bad as they have, shame over not knowing what to do next with these broken relationships. Can you relate to these people? Have you ever had a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the one who broke things down. What do I do now? Paul's thinking maybe they're having that moment. And so he says to them in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's saying, you don't need to devolve into a spiral of shame over what's occurred in your church. All is not lost, family, when the Holy Spirit is here. In spite of the ways that you've mucked things up, he's able to teach you the ways of God's love towards one another. In fact, the Spirit is here for such an occasion as this. He's giving a discouraged community hope. And it's not just that they don't need to feel shame over it. Paul goes on, he's, he's, like, he's got his sights set way higher than that. Because he says in verses 3 and 4, not only so, but we also glory. That word glory means to boast. It's the same kind of boasting he said not to do in chapter 3. But now he's telling you to boast or to rejoice in what? In our sufferings. Because we know that sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Now again, is Paul on a new topic here? Has he gone from relational conflict to faith to boasting to suffering? Like he's all over the map. Just settle down on one topic, will you? Well, the word suffering, in Greek it's klipsis, it means to be under compression, to be in a pressure situation, to be under tension, to be pressed, pressed together. See, Paul's not talking about any old suffering or tribulation. He's talking about the pressure or the tension of this current conflict that they're going through. 
He's talking about the relational trouble that they've inflicted upon themselves. Do you see it? See, if you realize that you're responsible for dividing a church community that you're in and you had a genuine change of heart, wouldn't you feel terrible about that? Maybe you want to go on, like hide under a rock somewhere? But what does Paul say to these people about this tension that they've experienced? Not just, don't be ashamed that it happened. He says, glory in it. Rejoice that it's happened. Don't hide it. Don't avoid it. Don't minimize it. Don't moralize or spiritualize it away. Identify yourselves with it. Now, why in the world? Like, who wants... Like, we've been trying to figure out what to put on the marquee out front, you know, that sort of represents the heart of our community. This is not, like, I don't, I don't want to put, like, we have a lot of experience with conflict resolution. <laughs> you know? Like, people driving by, they're not going to be like that and go, ooh, that's the kind of thing I want to be a part of. <laughs> no, they're going to drive by and go, What's going on in that building? <laughs> Why would Paul tell them, in a sense, to put this on their marquee? To name it and own it? I think it's because even though conflict is not from God, it, it always has the potential to be used by God for our good. It has the potential of doing a work that transforms us into the kind of community where the presence of God can be experienced tangibly. So you remember uh, our four F's of conflict response? Our fight, flight, flee, and fawn triggers? Friends, those aren't the only options available to us. There's a new F word in town. And that F word is face and befriend. I snuck to it. I'm sorry. Face and befriend. That we face and befriend. And the reason that we can face and befriend this type of social suffering that, that the people in Rome have endured and many of us have endured, maybe even we feel responsible for the reason that we can face and befriend these things, friends, is because we live in a new creation space of God's grace and peace. We live in a new world that the resurrection of Jesus brought about on our behalf. This is what Paul's talking about in verses 1 to 2. He says, since we've been justified and made right through faith, or through the faithfulness of Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul is reorienting the community into a new address. He's saying this is where you live now. This is where you move. This is where you have your relational being. It's like one of those maps when you're lost, you know, if you go to, like, the mall. You ever, like, 
like what floor am I on and where which like wing am I in and you go up to one of those maps and, and what are you looking for immediately what do you care most about you are here you want to know where you are so that you know what's around you and to know if you need to move or not or if the thing that you're looking for is right behind you right Paul's going, since you've been made right with God, through Jesus' faithfulness, you have access to a new reality. You live at a new address, and that new address has a new operating system. Paul calls this space, this grace. It's like a new, it's like a new wing that you opened a door to, and now you're like, wow, I live here? This changes everything. You live in a space beyond the one that was only available to you before. He's saying this, and this has been the reality for you all along. I've been trying to get you to go up to that map and find yourself on it so that you can look around and see what's available to you. You haven't been living that way, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't been true. Paul wants the Gentile and Jewish Christians to inhabit this new space together. That because God has welcomed both, they now have everything that they need to address their differences, to treat one another with hospitality and with peace. You see, how you relate to conflict is why I asked this question at the beginning. How you relate to conflict tells us where we are choosing to make our stand. It tells us if we're living a new creation Because if, if we respond to relational conflict with the, the old toolbox, the tools of blaming and manipulating and retaliating and becoming passive-aggressive, or like the Romans, passing judgment on others, then Paul's saying we're choosing to stand outside the grace and presence of God. Living in, a, in, a, in an old address that doesn't describe us anymore. We're cutting ourselves off from the new identity in Christ. We're not accessing the kingdom of God. You see? But we have access to a new way because of where we live now. That in Christ we make our stand on new things like confessing our own sins before we blame others. Owning what we've done. Taking the log out of our own eye. Forgiving, reconciling, believing the best about everyone, providing space for another to explain themselves, and working together to hold on to the unity that God gives us. These are the postures and practices, friends, that are available to us now in the new creation fueled by God's Spirit. It's like uh, we have a ton of kids on our block. And... Um, there are always new kids like coming in from the other streets around because all of the kids on our street have friends elsewhere, right? And we've worked really hard like with our own kids and with the other kids in the neighborhood to set a sort of relational uh, culture with the kids on our street. You respect one another and you work together and you listen to the least and everybody has a place. And all these things that we talk about on Sunday mornings, we're trying to uh, build these into the way that our kids relate. 
Now, every once in a while, a kid comes from another street and they break the relational code of elbow lane. And so what do we, we don't shame them for that. They come from a different place where they don't use the tools that we have at our disposal. But when they come into our space, we go, that's not how we relate to one another here. There's a new dynamic going on, and you get to be a part of it. We'd love for you to be a part of it. But you've got to leave the old stuff out there. The good news is that in Christ, we are given a new operating system for navigating conflict. No longer are we left to endure it alone or navigate it with the, old, the same old methods because now, friends, now we stand in the secure grace of knowing that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit teaches and leads us to face and befriend conflict. It's the space in which we encounter God's reconciling power to save. So Paul is calling these Christians who are in conflict back to their common identity as accepted ones in Christ. He's helping them to stand on the presence and grace of God. He's inspiring them to choose to see the conflict as an opportunity for renewal and hope. To enter that conflict with the love that God wants to pour into them. And so, I, if if you're trying to hold up somebody that does all those things really, really well, who are you going to point to? Who comes next? Of course it's Jesus. Of course it's Jesus. You, you, you were allowed to give the Sunday school answer there. <laughs> It's Jesus himself who does all these things perfectly. And that's what verses 6 through 11 are doing. You see it? Paul's not doing abstract, individual theology. He's doing pastoral work. He's shepherding a community in conflict with the good news of what God has already done in Jesus and how that good news leads them away from shame and towards reconciliation with one another. And so that's why he says in verses 6 to 8, you see, which is Paul's like, let's look at someone else who's done this. You see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His, his listeners are hopeless that their conflict can't be mended. That the right time for reconciliation is long gone. And so what does Paul do? He talks about the time in which our relationship with God seemed hopeless too. And that the starting point of our relationship with him, it wasn't neutral ground. It began at a point of conflict too. You think your relationships with each other are beyond repair because you're in conflict? Guess who started a relationship with you guys while you were also in conflict? 
That's what he's doing. He's saying, friends, all of us were weak. All of us were powerless. We were, we were just like the Jewish Christians who were dividing the church. And we do that to all of our relationships too. All of us were sinners. We're just like the Gentiles who don't meet the standards of holiness. All of us were ungodly. We, we don't engage in conflict in the way that God's perfect love would. Like, we, we all have a lot in common. But rather than those things being disqualifying of God's ability to save, guess what? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And this is what the love of God in the realm of God's grace, this is what it looks like in relationships. And this is how God handled the division between himself and us. He goes on in verse 9 and says, Since we now have been justified and made right by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, I need another timeout. Can I get another timeout? I only need one again today. I'm getting better at just doing one a week. Um, too often, though, this verse is not used to encourage believers in Jesus. It is used to scare unbelievers into believing in Jesus because of the term God's wrath. It gets used to um, entice people to pray a prayer so they can escape God's anger towards them because they're such bad sinners. And this is not what Paul's doing here. You want to know why? Um, can I let you in on a secret? The word wrath in Greek does not have the word God in front of it. I'm going to let you sit with that for a second. Every time, in fact, every time Paul uses the term wrath in the book of Romans, he never supplies the word God in front of it. Save one time in chapter 1 when he talks about the people that the Jewish Christians are judging. It's supplied when it was translated into English because of a theological understanding, not a textual argument. Literally, this verse says, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through Jesus, through him? Now here's the question. What's the wrath that we're saved from? Are we saved from the wrath that God will otherwise unleash on us because we're sinners? Or, let's entertain a different option. Think about the context of what Paul's trying to do. Are we saved by the God of love from the wrath that we unleash on one another because we're sinners? Which is it? Which is it? Obviously, I'm going to contend for the latter today. I'm willing to have conversations about either one. And I used to be in camp number one, and now I'm solidly in camp number two. 
So there's opportunity for conversation, and I don't mean to teach this in such a way that doesn't allow for that. I want to be uh, generous and gracious with the way that we handle scripture. But I also want us to see that aren't we the ones who treat image bearers of God like enemies? Isn't that our problem, not God's? Isn't it us who are the ones who resent and seek vengeance on each other for wrongdoing? Isn't it us who are the ones who break relationships and fail to know the things that make for peace? Friends, it's our wrath that we need to be saved from. God isn't the problem. He's the solution. He's the solution to our problem. His love is what saves us from the wrath that we pour out on each other every stinking day. Why would God add wrath to the wrath that we already give to one another? No, his love and his peace and his justification and his glorification and his transformation of our hearts through the Holy Spirit, those are the things that God wants to lead us through. And what Paul is saying is, when you're in Christ, you are destined for a day when wrath no longer defines your relationship to everything. You're going to be saved from that through Jesus. See, Jesus perfectly lives in the space called this grace, and he demonstrates the new way that relationships can be mended. He regards those who treat him as an enemy with kindness, does he not? He takes the initiative to enter into conflict and willingly sacrifices his own life to secure re reconciliation. He saves us from the wrath and hatred that we perpetrate on him and each other. And if Jesus is just like God, because he's the son of God, then this is what God is like to you. He, we do not have a loving son and an angry father. We have a loving son who represents what God's heart has always been like towards his children. Paul's reminding us today that this is what God has done for each and every one of us. This is why we have hope. This is what makes peace possible. This is what drains the world of our wrath. This is the salvation God is working out among his people so that he can then work it out with the rest of creation. This is why he says in verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, so shall we be saved through his life. He's saying that God has made us right with him through Jesus' death, how much more does God have in store for us now that he's alive in us too? How much more is possible in my relationships, in your relationships, now that God is living and breathing in you and has brought you into this new realm called grace? You're not just made right with God. You're right makers with everyone now. He didn't just make peace with you. You're now peacemakers, unleashed on the world to make peace with everyone. And these conflicts that come up that are inevitable, you can face and befriend those because those are the meeting grounds of God's grace. They are ground zero 
of God's love poured out into you and through you. There are opportunities to stand on grace rather than wrath. There are ways that the Spirit is transforming your character into something that reflects Jesus' faithfulness. See, Paul's encouragement to those who despair in the ways that they handle conflict, people like us, he's saying, don't shrink back. Don't devolve into shame. And don't think that the ways that you've learned how to handle conflict are the only ways that are available to you anymore. New creation is here, friends. Jesus is alive. And you've been reconciled to be reconcilers. This is who you are in Christ. So whether or not you fight or flee or freeze or fawn, there's a new option available to you that leads to reconciliation and peace. Face and befriend the conflicts that inevitably arise. Face your own fears going into those. Face your own contributions to them. Face your own desire to control the outcome. And we befriend all those things as being where God is present in the work. That the work of reconciliation might be the work that God does both in you and through you. The good news that we proclaim today is that in Christ we're given a new operating system to navigate conflict. No longer are we left to endure division alone or navigate it with the old toolbox. Because today we stand in the secure grace, knowing that the love of God, the love that we need, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit leads us to face and befriend conflict as the space in which God gets to <coughs> pour out his reconciling power to save. So as we respond, let me ask, what relationships do you need to stand in the security of God's grace today? What relationships do you need this grace? And what conflicts seems like they're squeezing you into hopelessness and, and despair? Where do you need the love of God poured out into you through the Spirit so that you can enter into the suffering with perseverance and faith? <clears throat> this week I was uh, presented with the possibility of re-entering a relational conflict that I have not had to deal with for three years. And to be honest with you, when that possibility came about and I realized that I would probably have to speak up and step into it, um, it brought feelings of crushing anxiety and hopelessness. I was bombarded with thoughts of, do I really have the energy for this? What if, what if it triggers my depression all over again? What if my experience that I had three years ago of being gaslighted, what if that's the same experience I have again? What if we can't find reconciliation? I found myself going back into my old patterns, which for me is freeze followed by flee. I freeze because I don't know what to do. And then eventually I, I feel unsafe enough that I have to get out of it. 
So I was praying this week, I was having a Kairos moment with God. What does the new operating system of grace look like in this conflict for me? What step would I take if God were present at work here in this thing that I don't know how to do? And I ended up having a conversation on Friday with someone about it, and, and everything within me wanted to get up and run. But I sensed in that conversation, as I began to kind of open myself up to it and talk about what I understand the facts to be in this conflict and what brought it about in the first place, the reception that I received was one of love and grace and a desire to listen and understand. And I started to feel the wrath that I've stored up for myself for the last three years begin to drain from my body. That God is saving me and transforming me anew. The story is still being written, and I'm still scared. But I'm trusting, beginning to trust the good news. How about for you? What relationship scares the living daylights out of you? Where do you have conflict and desperately need the love of God because you have no love left? We're going to pray and ask God for that together. Um, so why don't we do that?